This is Smart Women, Smart Power, a podcast that features conversations with some of the world's most powerful women. The government still needs to provide, and if we let all of that dry up and don't help support the Ukrainian government while the war continues, then that could be an advantage for Russia. We feature thought leaders at all career levels, where we explore, among other things, the many contributions that women make to the fields of international business, national security, foreign policy, and international development. Does having women in positions of power influence the outcomes of decisions in these fields? Why or why not? Join me, Dr. Kathleen McInnes, director of the Smart Women Smart Power Initiative at the Center for Strategic and International Studies, for these incredible conversations. Welcome to an episode of Smart Women, Smart Power on the road. The road in question today is actually the road between Lviv and Kyiv, Ukraine. I am here with Elizabeth Hoffman, who is the Director of Government Relations and a fellow at CSIS, um, who has been organizing this trip that we're on in Ukraine to understand the state of affairs of what's happening in Ukraine and get a better sense of U.S. assistance and and the stakes and, and, and what's on the line right now. So forgive the road noise, but we are literally on a bus right now. So if we could, Elizabeth, what do you think are the key questions right now in the United States and U.S. Congress when it comes to Ukraine? Absolutely. Well, thanks so much for doing this, Kathleen, and so glad you could join us on this trip. I think the key questions that U.S. Congress has right now about Ukraine focus around the $113 billion that the U.S. has already appropriated to go to Ukraine, although it's a bit of a misnomer because not all of that $113 billion is going to the country of Ukraine. A lot of it stays in the U.S. to cover salaries, weapons, purchases, and whatnot, so that some of that money stays in the U.S. economy. However, it's still a lot of money that has been spent over the course of about a year and a half now. And so I think the questions, the main questions on people's mind and that we're hearing asked in meetings are what do Ukrainians need to continue to fight the war, to finish the war? What does finishing the war look like? So what kind of time and monetary commitment are we looking at over the short to long term? What is Europe doing? So we visited Poland before we came here. So to get a better understanding of what some of the European countries are contributing, we'll end the trip in Moldova and get a sense of what's happening there. And also, how is it being monitored? How is the aid, how is the the U.S. assistance being monitored, both on the U.S. side? So what are U.S. government agencies and entities doing to monitor the assistance to ensure it's getting to the right places? And how are the Ukrainians monitoring it? How is civil society looking at it? How is the Ukrainian government monitoring it really at all levels of of society? One thing that struck me, you mentioned the term resilience, and one thing that's really struck me is how resilient Ukrainian society has been to this war. We visited a facility this morning called Unbroken, which is about rehabilitation of wounded uh, individuals, prostheses were are manufactured there, and it was really interesting sort of symbol or metaphor for how this this country. That, I mean, they really aren't going to quit fighting until they achieve what they they see as victory. 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think one thing that's really struck me is the optimism of the Ukrainian people Mm -hmm. Um, in Poland. I feel like the mood was a bit more dour, but you come to Ukraine and everybody is, first of all, so grateful and thankful for what the United States has done so far to support their cause. But they're optimistic and hopeful. You would think in the situation where everybody has somebody they know, whether it be a relative or friend that's died or wounded seriously, like they all have a story, yet they maintain this like amazing sense of just optimism. Resilience mm-hmm. is really it's it's quite stunning, I think. Yeah. And one of the women that we met last night, she said that when you live in a war zone, you, you have to get used to your death, the idea of your death. And it, so it was just this amazing sort of very stark statement, but contrasting it or like integrating it with this optimism that they can win. It's, it's, it's just very, I guess what I'm saying is that it's extremely complicated, but yeah. powered. I think it's very profound. I mean, I was almost moved to tears by kind of what she said and how she said that. But again, as she said, it's not just about her and her friends. It's about their children, about the next generation and what they want for their kids and where they want to live, where they call home. And it's just really amazing. You mentioned the sort of dour note um, in Poland. Could you elaborate on what you were picking up from meetings there when it comes to that? I think that Poland has felt and continues to feel Russian aggression. It's kind of part of their everyday life. As many of them said, you know, we weren't surprised when the Russians invaded Ukraine. We were frankly expecting it. And I think that they feel it's kind of a burden Mm -hmm. that they seem to carry and a fear I mean, I think it also contributed that it also the they have elections coming up in in a little over a month, two months, maybe. And I think that's definitely clouding how they feel about the war. They're definitely strong support. But I don't know. I don't I, I can't quite tell what exactly it was that made me get that impression. I just didn't come away feeling super optimistic like I do when I'm here in Ukraine. Yeah, I'm not sure I would have noticed it until until we came here to Ukraine. Yeah, right? there's a contrast. That there's right. a contrast. But I got the sense that Poland is now trying to figure out what normal, like normal war support means and what, you know, whether the international community is really interested in supporting Ukraine in the long term. Yeah, I think you're right. I think that kind of hit the nail on the head that they feel like this is a huge burden that they have taken on, that they're willingly taking on because of their location and their neighborhood. They don't have Mm -hmm. any choice but to take it on. Yeah. And I think there's concern that I mean, I think there's definitely concern. One of the questions they were constantly asking our group is what is the attitude in the U.S. about continued support to Ukraine? So they're clearly worried about they're clearly tracking Mm -hmm. the debate in the U.S. And they're worried about fatigue, Ukraine fatigue on the part of Congress and the U.S. people because they understand the Russian aggression in a very personal way because they've been subject to it. And I think they worry that because the U.S. doesn't have that same experience that we will waver. Right. And also NATO didn't include or invite NATO or invite Ukraine to become a member at the Vilnius summit. And that is that cast a shadow over thoughts and feelings in 
Warsaw, I thought. Yeah, and I mean, they definitely emphasize the fact that because Poland is a NATO member and was accepted into NATO, they felt like that is why Russia has not tried to invade Poland, that that is their key to their security Mm -hmm. and deterrence, is that they are a NATO member. And yeah, I think there's some disappointment that they felt like the West might not um, make good on on the commitments to right. to accept Ukraine into NATO when the war is when the war is over. Yeah, and that sort of leads to this this and different ideas or nuances maybe is a better way of putting it on ideas of war termination and how how does this this war come to an end? And in Poland. It was very much about, you know, Ukraine must win because it will deal a blow to Russia. It will um, that will prevent it from, you know, expansionist, imperialistic adventures abroad again. Right. And here in Ukraine, it's about, you know, regaining territory and in some view, longer term goals of, you know, absolute like regime change or, or polity change within Moscow. Others are just, you know, looking more at, you know, the safety and security of their citizens. I thought it was interesting that some of our, the folks we talked to, you know, were quite comfortable with a weakened Russia. And, and it was contrasted that with some of the, the discomfort we have in, in the United States about, you know, well, weakened Russia can actually be a pretty dangerous Russia, right? Weakened states are not necessarily less able to act or less able to, to cause significant problems, especially when they're armed to have the nuclear weapons. So so there's this, this, this is a really long way of saying that there's some tensions in what the long game is here and and, and some inconsistencies out there or some things that are really hard to square. Yeah, I totally agree with you. And that's a question I feel like I'd like to ask more people is because at the same time, they're comfortable with a weakened Russia, but they've also said that they have a hard time imagining a democratic Russia. Right. So... Right. Would you want a weakened authoritarian regime? And I think the concern of many who follow Russia much closer than I do is Putin is bad, but maybe we know him. We don't know what would come next, and it could be worse than Putin. Yeah. So what does that really look like if they don't see a democratic future for Russia, mm-hmm. but you don't want Putin? Uh, what That doesn't sound like a recipe for stability which could really, I mean, given how large Russia is, as you said, they have nuclear weapons and a lot of other weapons floating mm-hmm. around, private mercenaries and whatnot, like that could devolve quickly into yep. a pretty bad situation. Back in the States, we're reading articles about the front line and, and failures of the counteroffensive and kinds of the need for kit and gear and ammunition for the front lines. Oh, back here, what I'm hearing is air support, the F-16s are critically important and they'd love to have some Patriots yes. here. Unsurprisingly, because we were in Lviv, they wanted Patriots for Lviv Airport because it's becoming strategically vital. Yes, those are the two requests we've definitely heard the most. And But also, what they've really been asking for is support for what they're already doing. They're yeah. not asking, you know, you haven't heard anybody say, oh, we need more soldiers. We need, they're like, right. no, we want to do this. This is our fight. We don't yes. expect you to engage. We just need you to partner with us. Mm-hmm. And the, the word partnership, I think, has yes. been really uh, something that we've heard a lot. Like, we need partnership from the West to mm-hmm. help us win. Yeah, and for those uh, who were heavily involved in the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, it's a it's a very different 
kind of relationship. It's it's with Iraq and Afghanistan it was it was much more direct support and um, guidance, mentoring. Kind of this is this is no yeah as you say we've got the kit we've got the the people we, this is our war help us fight it right yeah and civil society I mean they have such a strong and and really robust civil society, many of who we've met so far on this trip. So it's definitely, and it's a developed, it's not, it's a developed country. It's mm-hmm. not what you see and, you know, what, what you would have encountered in Iraq and Afghanistan. Exactly. Exactly. With an advanced economy. That brought to mind one of the things that, that Olga said last night, which was that over the past 10, 15 years, Ukrainian civil society has flourished, has grown. And so that's one of the key reasons that Ukraine has been so resilient and so been so, so able to fight this war because of that work of, and the, the strengthening of, of its own civil society. Yes. And this is one of the things I worry about when it comes to the rhetoric around congressional support of Ukraine is that there's been an emphasis on military support. Like maybe we should just support military and draw down some of the economic assistance and humanitarian other other things. But if we want Ukraine to come out of this war as a democratic, really an improved country, I think aligned with the West. Right, aligned with the West. Like we have to continue. I mean, supporting civil society is key to fighting corruption, yes. to ensuring democratic institutions and all those things that we want to stay and even grow during this war in Ukraine. And I think it's a pivotal time to invest in those structures, Um, because if we wait until the war is over to invest there, it will be harder to build it up. Yeah. And it will be it'll take longer. So invest now while, you know, there's opportunities. And I just I think the civil society support and really the Ukrainian government, despite the large amount, the large portion of direct assistance that both the U.S. and the EU have given. I mean, we heard today that, you know, they're planning on rolling blackouts in Kiev for the fall because they don't have the money to make the infrastructure repairs. Their yeah. budget, they don't have the, a lot of their tax base has left. They're spending so much money. 50, they said 50% of their budget is going to the war. I yeah. mean, that's incredible. And then you have mental health needs. You have actual yeah. health needs. All of these other services, the government still, education, the government still needs to provide. And if we let all of that dry up and don't help support the Ukrainian government while the war continues, then... That could be an advantage for Russia. Yeah, it could compromise the ability of us for the Ukrainians to win this war on their terms. Yes. Well, Elizabeth, thank you so much. This has been a fascinating conversation, as always. Thank you. Thank you so much, Kathleen. I am so glad you're here with us. Subscribe to the Smart Women, Smart Power podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to great content. Be sure to follow us on Twitter at Smart Women, or you can follow me on Twitter at KJ McInnes1. Thanks for listening and join us next time.